0: If you would, at this time, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Here again, the Word of God Almighty. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. The 10th article of the Apostles' Creed states, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. The meaning of which is that you believe that sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ according to the grace of God. Now as lovely as the Creed is, the Creed is of no use to us except that it is based upon the word of God. Therefore, to see this truth in the creed, we are going to look this morning at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, where we see God says that sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ according to the grace of God. Now, beloved, I want you to understand that in order to understand the forgiveness of sins, we must first become acquainted with sins. When the Bible speaks of sins it is not referring to your carbon emissions or using the wrong pronoun. It is not referring to your whiteness or your blackness or your yellowness or any other coloredness. The Bible defines sin as any lack of conformity Or transgression of the law of God. Any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In fact, nothing is a sin except what God said is a sin. But everything that God says is a sin, is a sin indeed. God is your creator, you are his creature. He is God, we are not. By virtue of this relationship between God, your creator, and you, his creature, and by virtue of his greatness above you, you owe him all fitting worship and service and obedience. It is right that the creature should worship and serve and obey his creator. This is the rent which we owe to Him for His having made us and given us life. Now, by the law of God, we mean God's expressed will for you, His creature. This law is revealed to us partly in God's creation, but most clearly in God's book called the Bible. This law of God is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. You can find those in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Jesus summarized all the law of God this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You commit sin when you fail to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And when you fail to love your neighbor as yourself. You commit sin when you fail to live up to God's standard for you. And when you do anything contrary or against that standard. Now, the Bible speaks both of something called original sin and actual sins. Original sin refers to your share in the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Original sin has two parts. The guilt of it and the corruption that proceeds from it. The guilt of it means you are judged guilty of having broken God's law in Adam. The corruption of it means that from Adam, your first father, you have inherited a corrupted nature. The image which God bestowed upon man was tarnished, ruined, effaced in the fall of Adam and you took part in that. If you desire more about original sin, I point you to Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21. Better yet, I invite you to return this evening for a sermon on Romans chapter 5 verses 18 through 21. For now, we press on to speak of actual sins. Actual sins are those instances in which you personally, apart from Adam, fail to live up to God's law or personally go against his law. Now, actual sins are of two kinds, omission and commission. Omission and commission. Sins of omission are those ones in which you neglect or keep off or leave off or omit to do all or part of some God-given duty. For example, you are to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. When you fail to do that in part or in, in whole, you are failing to do your duty. That's a sin of omission. When you refuse to do what you ought to do, you sin by omitting. The Apostle James says, to him who knows what to do and does not do it, it is sin. You all being Christians know a lot about what you ought to do. And when you do not do it, you sin by omission, by leaving off what is required of you. Sins of commission, on the other hand, are those instances in which you do or commit something that God forbids. God says, don't do it, and you do it. God says, thou shalt not, but thou doest. When you do what you ought not to do, you sin by commission. All of God's law, every part of it, applies to all parts of you. There is no portion of your person that is exempted from God's law. I mean, it is not merely your actions, but also your words and your thoughts, which God judges. This means that God counts the sins in your thoughts as well as in your words and your deeds. For example, the Lord Jesus Christ likened unjust anger to murder and he likened lust in the heart to adultery. Now, because by being his creature you owe God worship and servants service and obedience, you must understand that every sin, the smallest sin, is a rebellious refusal to honor God as God. Even the least sin is a misguided and futile attempt to pull God down from heaven and replace him with yourself. When you sin, what you are saying is you are God and God is not. That you are in charge and God is not. That you are the master and God is your servant. I know none of us would say that aloud. But that is what sin communicates in its essence. That being the case, you must understand that every sin brings guilt upon you and appoints sinners to the wrath of God. Sin earns death. The wages of sin is death. It's the proper recompense for rebellion. Sin subjects you not only to death, but all miseries, physical, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. If you want to know what is wrong with the world today, the answer is sin, in which every one of us has our fair share. Not only that, but every sin is further enslavement to sin. You see, to sin is to voluntarily sell yourself into servitude. To voluntarily sell yourself as a slave. A slave to sin and its payment of death. By sins, mankind has sold itself into sin and remains under the bondage and condemnation of it. But enough about sins. We're here to discuss the forgiveness of sins this morning. And in this passage, we see that sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. The word him in verse 7, in him, the first him, refers back to the beloved In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Of course, the beloved is God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. The creed speaks of him this way. Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, rose again from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty who will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is him, the beloved. It says that in him we have redemption. Now the word redemption is a financial term and is used metaphorically here. It literally means to buy back. For instance, Israel was redeemed from Egypt. That is to say, God went in there and bought them back by a mighty hand. The concept of redemption runs throughout the Old Testament. There were laws for redeeming property, for redeeming slaves. Ruth was redeemed from poverty by Boaz. In the Roman world and in the Greek world as well as in the Hebrew world in most nations, you could redeem a slave from his master by paying a price for him. So this says, in him, that is Jesus, we have redemption. From what are we redeemed? From the wrath and curse of God? From death and all the miseries that come as consequences of sin. We are redeemed from the bondage and condemnation of sin. Now redemption is a purchase. And that purchase requires The payment of a debt. Consider one who has sold himself into slavery to pay his debts. Before he can be released from that slavery, those debts must be paid. Your sins are your debts. And so the redemption of sinners requires the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness here means removal, letting a go, taking away. This is meant to tell us that Jesus removes, takes away your sins. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Forgiveness, it speaks of God's canceling that debt, that record of iniquity that you have earned for yourself. God, in forgiveness, gives you a clean slate, He wipes it clean. He pardons your trespasses. He covers your sins. He no longer counts your iniquity against you. Jesus described the forgiveness of sins as a king who forgave all the debts of his servant. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, the Lord said, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. How can your sins, your horrible crimson sins, become as white as snow? What can wash away your sins, Christian? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Blood, in this passage, is a figure of speech. For the shedding of blood, it means death. It refers to Christ's death on the cross. He, the Son of God, offered his life... As a sacrifice for you. Redemption and forgiveness of sins are through his blood, which is to say, by means of his death. Hebrews 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God was speaking to himself as much as to us in that passage, was he not? Apart from the shedding of his son's blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But remember that Jesus Christ came to give his life as a ransom. He was born to die. And his blood is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Back in Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 11... We read this, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. Jesus Christ gave his blood on the altar of the cross to make atonement for your soul. Your letter of pardon is written in Christ's blood. Remember in Genesis, when Abel's blood cried out from the ground for justice. Remember this today. The blood of Jesus Christ cries out for mercy upon sinners. This distance between what we deserve and what we receive is what we call grace. The forgiveness of sins is according to the riches of God's grace. The second, his, here in verse 7, refers back to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from verse 3. So it's the blood of Christ, the grace of the Father in this instance. The forgiveness of your sins is according to. To God's grace. The, gr- the word grace means favor, kindness. In this case, it refers to an undeserved favor. This means that it is God and not man who worked to accomplish your salvation, your forgiveness. In other words, it's not according to your goodness, the intentions of your heart, your obedience. It's not even according to your repentance or your faith or your prayers or your obedience. The forgiveness of your sins is according to the sheer and undeserved kindness of God Almighty to you. Romans chapter 9 verse 16 says, "It is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy." Notice here that the forgiveness of your sins is according not just to grace, but to the riches of God's grace. God's grace does not come to you in drips and drops and a little at a time, a trickle. God is not stingy with his grace. God's grace comes to you as a mighty river overflowing its banks, supplying all that is needed. God's grace is displayed in this passage in that he sent His beloved son for you. You know, sometimes I I think of those in our military and, and we send our sons to foreign places to die in place of someone else. And that bothers me. But I think about the utter incongruency of the Lord God sending his beloved son to die in place of me. And I begin to understand the riches of God's grace. God's grace is displayed not only in his sending of his son to shed his blood on your behalf, but also in his acceptance of his son's sacrifice on your behalf. God is pleased not only to punish Christ for your sins, but he is pleased to accept Christ and all of his righteousness and his sacrifice for you. And he is also pleased to apply all the benefits of that sacrifice to you, to give you what Jesus Christ deserves. Jesus Christ got what you deserve. You get what Jesus Christ deserves. It is according to the riches of God's grace. When we begin to understand that forgiveness of sins is accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ and that it is given according to the grace of God, two other things become clear. Number one, there isn't anything we can ever do to deserve it. There is not anything we could ever do that will approach deserving it. Number two, nothing and all creation can ever take it away from us. It is according to the riches of God's grace. It is God who works to forgive sins. And you would have to be more powerful than God Almighty to undo his work. Now we see... That sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ according to God's grace. But all of this will be utterly worthless to you if you don't receive that forgiveness. Jesus will just be an historical figure who suffered and died under the Romans some 20 centuries ago. You see, you must personally procure that forgiveness. You must have it. You must take possession of his offer. We do this initially when we first believe. But let me just warn you that if you are sitting here today and you are hearing my voice and you have not received the forgiveness of your sins, that the wrath of God abides on you. You are condemned. And you will one day stand before God with all of those sins and you will have no hope. There will be nothing you can say, nothing you can do, you will not be able to hide. And dear friends, the torment which Jesus Christ underwent on the cross will come to you. What God did to his son on the cross will come to you. Only it will not last six hours. It will last six billion years times 60 billion years. How can you receive the forgiveness of your sins? You need it. How can you receive it? The passage says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You must be found in him. Just as Noah and his family were saved from the deluge by being sealed in the ark, you must be found in Jesus Christ. But how do we get in Jesus Christ? You believe in him. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ is in Jesus Christ. Those who do what Jesus says are those who are in him. And Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Now there is the initial forgiveness of sins. We believe in the Lord, and as soon as that happens, we are united with Christ, we are placed in him, and God seals us with his spirit, and we are what's called justified, counted righteous in God's sight. But there's also a daily forgiveness of sins. A daily forgiveness of sins. Continually. In the Lord's Prayer, after teaching us to ask for our daily bread, the Lord Jesus teaches us to ask for the forgiveness of our trespasses. The implication is that our trespasses needing to be forgiven are as continual and as urgent as the food we ask for every day. Sometimes Christians struggle with this. They say, well, if I'm, if I'm forgiven for all my sins... And if I'm justified, why do I need daily to go to God and seek his forgiveness? Well, the first and most obvious reason, I hope you understand, is that God tells you to. A second reason is that your sins, even after you've been forgiven, continue to mount up. When you stop sinning, then you may refrain from confessing those sins to God. But let's explain it a little bit more. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, to whom was the epistle of 1 John written? Was it not written to Christians like you? You see, in a book written to Christians, the apostle is saying, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When Christians sin, they are not removed from God's family and set into utter darkness along with the unbeliever. But what happens is that they do take upon themselves, they do earn his fatherly displeasure. You interrupt your fellowship with God. The sin that you have committed, the guilt that you have on your conscience, and the offense to your Father in heaven stands between you and him. You must confess it. You must repent of it. You must seek his forgiveness. You must be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And the same blood, the same blood of Jesus that wiped your sins away initially, is there to cleanse again and to clean your conscience that you may again enjoy fellowship with God. You see, by our sins, we provoke our Father. And you've experienced this. You can be in the same household with a person, whether a spouse or a child or a friend. But if you are at personal enmity with them, you can sense it. And your fellowship is disrupted and broken. That's how it is with God. When we are disobedient to him, when we violate his commands, when we rebel against him, we are telling him we don't want him to be our father anymore. So we must repair that. We must go to him and confess that and experience his cleansing of our unrighteousness. So you humble yourself daily, sometimes many times a day. You humble yourself. Confess your sins to him. He already knows about them. Confess them to him. Beg his pardon for those sins. Renew your faith and your repentance. And when you do that, God forgives you. He cleanses you and he restores you to the right fellowship with him. You go forward. He doesn't hold it against you again. He's not going to continue to be mad or give you the silent treatment. So you must procure forgiveness. That forgiveness forgiveness is both initially and continually. But you must also practice forgiveness. Those who are forgiven by the blood of Christ according to the grace of God need to learn to forgive others. Jesus said, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You cannot reasonably expect God's pardon for your sins if you are callously unwilling to forgive other people's sins. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Take it away. Wash it clean. Set it aside. Cover over it. Just like you expect God to do to you. A key word I want you to recognize in Luke chapter 17 If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him, is the word repentance. Know this, you have no right to expect pardon from God if you don't repent. God does not promise to forgive you if you don't repent. Likewise, you shouldn't expect people to forgive you if you don't repent. This follows then, neither should other people expect pardon from you if you are unwilling to repent. What I'm saying is this, when your brother comes to you and he's repented of his sin, right, he has admitted his fault, he has acknowledged his wrong, then Jesus says you're obligated to forgive him, not just seven times, but seven times seventy, But if anyone should be hard-hearted, if anyone should be proud, if anyone will not acknowledge their guilt, he should not expect pardon, whether with God or with man. So you must practice forgiveness. You must also promote forgiveness. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Now here are two ways that you can be a peacemaker. Number one, by promoting peace between God and man. Promoting peace between God and man. God can use your faith in him, your relationship with him, to bless others. You use your faith, your relationship with God, to help bring other men to peace with God. In Mark chapter 2, we read of a paralytic whose friends carried him to Jesus. And this is in chapter 2, verse 5 of Mark's gospel. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Do you see how those men, their faith in Christ, brought their friend to Christ and their friend was healed and forgiven. God can use your faith to bless other people. If you will bring people to Jesus, they can be healed. Here are two ways that you can bring people to Jesus. Number one is prayer. When you pray for someone, you are bringing them to the Remembrance of God you are bringing them before God and you are begging for his mercy upon them the second way that you can bring people to Christ bring them to God so that there can be peace between God and man is in your profession Now, by your profession, I mean both what you say and how you live. But a Christian profession, a Christian speech, Christian truth, and Christian life lived in accordance with that Christian truth is a means by which God can bring other men to peace with Himself. You don't have to be a preacher to help people get the word of God. Think of this very simply. Think of this, uh, parents with your children. You bring them to church, they hear the word of God. You bring them to Sunday school, they hear the word of God. You pray with them, they hear the word of God. You teach them at home, they hear the word of God. Don't you see that in all of those things, you are bringing them to Christ and asking God to have mercy upon them bringing about the occasion in which they can find peace with God. This is the same with your friends, with your spouses. You can be a means that God uses. And it's not always because you say something, although sometimes it is, and and you don't have to be a preacher to say what it means to be a Christian. Friends, you're a Christian. You know what it means to be a Christian. You know what it means to be forgiven. That's all it is. You're a sinner. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. You believe in Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. That's the gospel. That's it. Your profession refers both to your talk and to your walk. And and by it, you can help bring peace between God and man. And by the way, let me put in a plug for our community festival booths at this point. This is a means, right? Why? Forgiven people want other people to be forgiven. And and doing something like the community booths gives people an opportunity. We're giving out Bibles where the gospel is. We're inviting them to church where the gospel is preached. This is a way that you can help to promote peace between God and man. And understand this. Every person you see... Just look at the sea of people you see. If they are not Christians they are not at peace with God. God is their enemy, and they are the enemy of God. And the only hope that they have is to be forgiven and have peace with God. Therefore, you can promote peace between them and God. Now, here is the second way to be a peacemaker. You can make peace between man and man, right? This is part of promoting forgiveness, Promoting forgiveness means not only seeking peace between God and man, but between man and man. The first but often overlooked aspect to this is that you personally strive to be at peace with others. Paul says in Romans twelve eighteen, If it is possible, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. If it is possible... As much as it depends upon you. Some people can't be peaceable. Some people will not have peace with you. Jesus did everything possible as much as it depended on him. And he was put to death on a Roman cross. But as much as it depends on you, seek to be at peace. Keep short accounts with people. Conduct yourself righteously to them. Seek their forgiveness when you've offended them. Strive to be at peace with others. If there is enmity, if there is conflict, let it not be because of your sin. Let it not be because of you. The second way to be a peacemaker between man and man is to encourage one another to live peaceably. When your brother is entangled in a sin, you go to him. You warn him. You encourage him to make peace with God and with the people he's offended. When you have mutual friends who are at enmity with each other, you go to them and you remind them of their mutual obligations to forgive one another, to love one another, to live in fellowship with one another. You see, you are a peacemaker. Remind them to love and forgive each other even as Jesus Christ loves and forgives them. This is why Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. As one who's been forgiven his sins, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I declare to you all this morning that sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ according to the grace of God of God Almighty. Let us pray. Sovereign Lord, we are humbled by your grace to us. We are humbled, O God, that your Son would shed his blood, the perfect on behalf of the imperfect, the righteous on behalf of the unrighteous. We praise you for that. We ask, O God, that you would forgive us and cleanse us, that you would help us to forgive others, that, O God, you would help us to make peace Peace between you and your creatures and peace between our brothers and sisters. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.